Thank you so much, Bruce, for reminding us that we have such a great Savior who does not, will never cast us out. And thank you, praise team, for leading us to the throne of grace so that we can praise our awesome and great God. I'm Nathan Boyette. I'm the pastor of Outreach and Mission here at Annapolis EP. And I'm so happy to see all of you out here today as we worship our God on this Saturday afternoon. We are finishing up our worship, or our sermon series of Christ and the Minor Prophets today. We are going to be looking at the last book of the Old Testament, the last minor prophet, Malachi, and then next week we are going to start a three-part sermon series on biblical perspectives on the pandemic, race, and politics. Those are three big issues that are society and culture and our church are facing right now. And so Pastor Harrison and myself are going to do a three-part series on that before then in October we dive into the book of Acts. But today we are looking at Malachi. Uh, And so if you have a Bible with you or a device or you can look up on the screen, we're going to be reading in Malachi 2, 17 to 3, 7 today. As I mentioned, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And it's not just the last book in the order of the Old Testament, it's also the last book written in the Old Testament history. Over a period of a thousand plus years, God interacted with a specific people group, the people of Israel. He started with Abraham, making promises, covenant promises to Abraham that he would make him a great and mighty nation that would then in turn bless all the families of the earth. And then we follow them through a thousand years of history where they are in slavery in Egypt, they are taken out of Egypt with Moses in, and taken into the promised land, they become a mighty people, a nation with a king, King David sees them expand to an empire, his son Solomon uh, rules over them at their greatest extent. But then history keeps going, and because of their idolatry, their disobedience, their sinfulness, they are exiled after many years of defeat by other surrounding nations. They are taken into exile in Babylon, where they are there for over 70 years. And during their time in Babylon, through different prophets, God told them, I'm going to redeem you and restore you. I'm going to take you out of Babylon and take you back to the land that I promised Abraham. I'm going to restore you, and it's going to be even better than it was And that's where we are in the book of Malachi. They're back in the land. They've built the temple. They're in Jerusalem. But it's anything but what they felt like God had promised. And so we approach this book as if we are approaching from a point of bitter disappointment is where Malachi's audience was sitting. Let's read together Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old as in, and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that you have spoken to Malachi, to the people of Israel at that time, and even to us thousands of years later. Thank you that you are here present with us. Holy Spirit, speak through your word. Challenge us, convict us, encourage and comfort us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A normal part of life is having to go and get checkups. When you are a little baby, your parents take you to see the doctor for your checkups at different points, make sure you're growing well, make sure you're hitting all the developmental marks, get you some vaccines so you're healthy and safe. When you get older, you have to go for yearly checkups to make sure that illnesses and diseases don't progress unchecked or untreated. If you are wise, you go to see the dentist twice a year for a checkup. If you have a car, you should be taking it to get routine diagnostics, oil changes, checkups to make sure that nothing's going to suddenly break. Checkups are an inevitable part of our lives. The book of Malachi is like a checkup, a checkup between God and his people, a checkup to see how their relationship is doing. As I mentioned earlier, the whole Old Testament is a history of a covenant relationship between God and his people. Covenant is a type of relationship that is based on promises. And so we used to refer to marriage as the covenant of marriage. We don't often refer to it that any, anymore, but in Christian circles, the idea of covenant is still very prominent. God had a covenant relationship with the people of Israel, and he has a covenant relationship with each of us now. The covenant was that God promised, not because of anything good in them, he just promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. And on the part of Israel, the result was that they needed to live in a certain way. They needed to be different than the nations around them. And that was what a healthy covenant relationship would be like. The book of Malachi as a checkup showed his audience the covenant relationship is not healthy. The covenant relationship is doing bad because the people of Israel are far from living the way God wanted them to. And so we see throughout Malachi, he uses this statement, question, answer pattern so that it happens all throughout. And we see it in our passage specifically, but just as an example, in chapter one, he says, the Lord speaks for the most of the, most of the, uh, the, the book of Malachi, but the Lord says, a son honors his father, a servant honors his master. That's a statement. And then the question, so where is my honor? And then an answer, I have no honor because you have despised me. 
is what happens. And that happens throughout the whole book of Malachi. One commentator notes that this statement, question, answer, pattern is Malachi, the Lord speaking through Malachi, putting the thoughts of his audience into words. And as we can see, if you read the book of Malachi, the whole thoughts of the audience just ooze arrogance, disappointment. They feel God has not kept his promises to the people of Israel. So they mockingly ask at different points, why should we follow you, Lord? Malachi uses this statement, question, answer pattern, and we see that specifically in our passage. In chapter 2, verse 17, we see the Lord state, you have wearied the Lord with your words. They've, the people have wearied him by their thoughts and words that he has lost his patience. The people will respond, how? How have we wearied you? And the Lord clarifies by giving two examples of their words. First, the people were saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. This first statement is the exact opposite of everything the whole Bible has ever revealed about who God is. God does not delight in wickedness or evil, and the people knew that if they had read the Bible. And the second statement, where is the God of justice? This question is indistinguishable from doubting God's existence. See, the people were struggling so much because they viewed the Lord as having failed in his promises to restore them to their rightful place in the promised land as a wealthy empire, as a people with a great temple that was the envy of the entire earth. So during Malachi's day, God's people were disappointed and bitter, and as a result, they were faithless to the covenant. They continued to sin against God and against others, and it comes up in numerous ways throughout the book. They are cheating God by giving him sickly animals for the sacrifices. They are faithless to their spouses, doing adulterous affairs, divorcing their spouse to marry another, and neglecting their children. They are oppressing those around them by withholding, as we read in our passage, the wages of the hired worker. So we see that God's people have been faithless to the covenant. But though Malachi highlights the people's sinful and their covenant faithlessness, the book also stresses that God is the Lord and he desires to purify them and redeem them. And we see that in a couple ways. First, Malachi has 55 verses, but 47 of them are in the first person. 47 of the verses are God speaking directly to the people. And in all those 47 verses, the Lord's name, his personal covenant name, Yahweh, which he revealed to Moses is used 21 times. Another name for the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is used 24 times, or in the ESV, which we read, the Lord of hosts. See, Malachi wants to emphasize that the Lord is Lord of everything. The other way is in talking about what a healthy covenant relationship is, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But we see that this dysfunctional relationship that the people have is highlighted throughout the book. But in our passage, we see the big idea clearly displayed that the Lord Almighty purifies his people so that they can give every inch of their lives to him. The Lord Almighty purifies his people so that they can give every inch of their lives to him. 
So we're gonna explore that concept by looking at our passage and seeing two main points, the purifier and the people. First, the purifier. We read in chapter three, verse one, the Lord saying to his people, behold, I'm gonna send my messenger before me and he's gonna come and he's gonna prepare the way for the Lord because the Lord says, I myself am coming. In verse one, it says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This was almost inconceivable to the people of that day. God himself was gonna be coming to the temple. But that would lead to an inevitable question, why? Why is the Lord coming? And we can see in our passage why he is coming through three characteristics that are talked about about the Lord and three actions that come from those characteristics. First, we see that God is holy and pure. Second, we see that he is just. Third, we see that he is faithful to the covenant. His holiness and purity will lead to him purifying the people. His justice will lead to him judging the wicked. And his faithfulness to the covenant will lead to him reconciling with the people. So let's look at that real quick as we look at the purifier. First, he's holy and pure. If you look in verse 2 and 3, we see that the Lord, when he comes to the temple, is described as a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. In verse 3, it says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Behind this verse, behind this concept, is the fact that they needed to be refined. (laughs) They had sin and impurity in their lives, in their nation, in their relationship. And God, throughout the whole Bible, has emphasized again and again, I am a holy God, and I cannot allow impurity and sin to dwell with me. If we look at Isaiah 6, which we sang just earlier, Isaiah, when he was in the throne room of heaven, saw the Lord, and the angels cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The people were very familiar with the book of Leviticus, which talked about how they could have a relationship with this holy God, and the whole book of Leviticus, again and again, there's an echo, I am holy, says the Lord. They were familiar with their history. They knew that Moses and the people of Israel, when they came out of Egypt and they were going to the promised land, they stopped at Mount Sinai where God gave them the covenant, 10 commandments. And they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and none of the people would even set foot on the mountain because God was so terrifyingly holy. All of this is behind this passage and the people would have been aware of it. Contained in this idea of a refining fire is that God wants to do away with all impurities. So God will purify the people. Fuller's soap here, which it refers to, would have been like ancient bleach. It was a type of soap that they would use that would completely cause any marks or dirt to be whited out of cloth. So we see that a holy God is coming, and he will purify the people of all that is wicked and sinful. But at the same time that we see that God is holy and pure, we also see that he is just. He loves justice. And so we see in verse 2 and 5, we see Malachi, or the Lord, saying, who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? And in verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness. And then he goes on and lists a number of sins. God is a God of justice who hates sin and wickedness and will judge it when he comes, because he loves 
justice. And that concept is readily apparent in this passage. Because he is holy and pure, he will judge wickedness and sin. And if that's where the story ended, we would all be in terrible trouble. But even in our passage, that is not where the story ends, because we see in verses 6 and 7 another aspect of who our God is. In verse 6, we read, for I, the Lord, do not change. God is a faithful God, and he has made abundant promises at this point in the history of God's people, abundant promises to the people of God, promises that he would redeem and restore them, promises in Jeremiah that he would give them a new heart so that sin would no longer be known in their lives. So he goes on, he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. There is a promise there. Return, be reconciled with me, the Lord cries out to his people. So we see in this passage the awesome Lord Almighty, a holy, pure, just God who is also faithful to his covenant. He will come and he will purify his people, refine them so that impurity and sin is done away with. If we want to really understand this concept of refining and purity, we need to think about different types of fire. We could think of a forest fire where a fire might start small and it begins and then it becomes an inferno that's just raging throughout the forest. But a forest fire is indiscriminate. It'll burn the healthy tree and the unhealthy tree. It'll burn the deer as well as the dead leaves. It burns everything, uncheckable most of the time. Or we could think of an incinerator where people would take their garbage and throw it in the raging hot incinerator and it would be burned up to ash. The goal of the incinerator is complete destruction, complete doing away with what's thrown into it. Neither of those is what's being described here as a refiner's fire. The goal of the refiner's fire is to purify, to take away that which is unwanted and leave that which is valuable and precious. A smith would take metal and refine it to take out the impurities. The image used here is silver and gold. You see, you you don't just go and mine metal and find perfect silver and gold. They're all mixed together. And so a smith would heat up the metal and burn away the impurities so that they had something valuable and worthwhile to work with. And that's what we see here. That's who our God is. He views each one of us as valuable, precious, silver, and gold. But we have impurities all mixed in with that valuable aspects of ourselves. And so God is a refining fire. Is this how you view the Lord? Do you view him in this light? We often only view the Lord as loving, gracious, and forgiving. He is. He is abundantly so but he is also what is described here, holy, perfect, a fire that will consume that which is evil and wicked. God is a refiner, a refiner, a consuming fire that burns away impurity and sin. And the fact that he is a refining fire is not because he does not love us, it's precisely because he loves us. If any of you are parents or if you're a child, hopefully you can 
imagine what your parent might feel, but if you were a parent and you had your baby and they had a dirty diaper, would you let them sit there for days on end in their filth, in their dirty diaper? No. No parent would do that. And if we who are an imperfect parent would not do that, how much more would our Heavenly Father not allow us to go on living in sin, which is so horrific for us? So this is who our God is. He loves us too much to be content with us stuck in our sins. Do you have that same view of your sin? Do you hate your sin the way the Lord does? Are you cooperating with him in the purification process, the refining fire that he often wants to put you through? To be refined by the Lord, to be purified from our sins is rarely a pleasant experience. He's going to use difficulty. He's going to use trials. He's going to use suffering to do that. And so that's why Peter, writing in 1 Peter, can say, now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor. And then Peter goes on and says to count it joy when you suffer trials of all various kinds. Why? Because through them, God will refine and purify us if we cooperate with him. What is the result of all this? What is God's goal? His goal is to have a refined, pure, holy, set-apart people. So we move on to the second point, the people. A people who would live in that covenant faithfulness, that love of God and that love of neighbor that we talked about earlier. What does that look like? It looks like an all-encompassing purity, a purity that's going to impact our relationship with God, our relationship with our spouse, our girlfriend, our boyfriend, our relationship with our coworkers, our relationship with our money, our relationship with our consuming, our shopping, our relationship with our hobbies, our entertainment, everything. Dutch Theologian, prime minister, and newspaper editor, Abraham Kuyper, said this. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. What is he saying there? He's saying that every single part of our lives, Christ wants to be part of it. He wants to be central to it. There's not anything that we do that we should not first submit to the Lord. And that's present here in Malachi as well. And he touches that on a number of different ways. We already talked about how the people had failed miserably at the covenant relationship. One commentator notes how a broken relationship with God led to a broken relationship with all of human society. They were, and this is characterized by intermarriage and divorce that was rampant in Malachi's day. And we can see that other aspects as well. In chapter one, God calls them out on how their worship was impure and dishonoring to the Lord. In chapter two, he talks about how their family life was in disarray, divorce, adultery, letting kids run wild with no goal of raising them up in the way of the Lord. Chapter 2 goes on to talk about how the people mockingly questioned whether God even existed. Chapter 3 talks about their financial stewardship and how it was non-existent 
characterized by the fact that they would give sickly animals to the Lord as a sacrifice, and they would not give their tithes and their offerings to the Lord to upkeep the temple. Chapter 3 goes on to talk about how, and this is kind of the culmination of chapter 3, how they mockingly question if, if, of, if it's even worthwhile to serve and follow the Lord. But we are called to live differently. We are called to live in reverent fear of the Lord. We are to live in the opposite way I've just described. We are to live in a way that delights to worship the Lord in purity. We are to live faithful to our marriages and joyfully raise up children to follow the Lord. We are to live in a way that trusts the Lord in the midst of evil and disappointment. We are to live in a way that uses our financial resources for God's glory and joyfully gives to God's kingdom through our tithes and our offerings. And we are also called to joyfully following the Lord, knowing that to follow him is better than life knowing that to have everything in the world but to not have him would be meaningless. One way that Malachi speaks about how the people are to live is that concept that I just mentioned, reverent fear of the Lord. It's used throughout the whole book, but it's used specifically in Malachi 2, 5 through 7, where God wants to give a beautiful picture of an ideal priest and not just an ideal priest, but what every Israelite should strive for. In Malachi 2, 5, he says, my covenant, this is the Lord speaking, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. The priest that's portrayed here is one who is living out that healthy covenant relationship, a covenant of life and peace where the Lord has given him life and peace and he joyfully accepts them from him and then he lives in reverent fear of the Lord. What does it say about him? It says that he has true instruction in his mouth He lived a life of genuine worship and mission to those around him. No wrong was found on his lips. He valued the integrity of his words. Scripture, especially the Old Testament, often uses people's words as a key to how their character actually is. And he walked with the Lord in peace and uprightness. He had close communion with the Lord, characterized by keeping that covenant relationship and he turned many from iniquity. This priest was not just concerned with himself, he was outward focused. He wanted the blessings that God had given him to overflow outwards to others. Joyce Baldwin, a commentator, she notes on this passage, the Lord wants them to find true satisfaction and be like the ideal priest portrayed here, accepting daily his gifts of life and peace, responding with awe to the privilege of belonging to the Lord, and in his turn, passing that on to others. That is what we are called to do. It's not merely just an outward portrayal, it's an inward reality. As I thought about this, I was thinking about a book that I just read this morning to my daughter called The Paper Bag Princess. The Paper Bag Princess is this beautiful story about a princess, which of course my daughter, who's four, loves, 
And this princess, Elizabeth, lives in a castle. She has lots of beautiful dresses, and there's a neighboring prince, Ronald, who comes and hangs out all the time, and she dreams about how one day they're going to get married. But one day, a dragon comes, destroys her castle, burns it to the ground, burns up all of her beautiful dresses, and takes Ronald off to the dragon cave for a snack. The princess is alive and well, but she has no dresses, so she puts on a paper bag. And she's a tough princess, so she thinks, I'm going to get that dragon, and I'm going to save Ronald. And she goes, and she knocks on the dragon's door. She tricks the dragon, and he uh, comes out, and he, she tricks him into doing all these things to show what a tough dragon he is. And he works so hard that he gets exhausted, and he falls asleep. She goes and opens the door and calls, Ronald, come out. And he comes out, and, he, and Ronald comes out with his nose stuck up in the air, and he looks at her. He's like, oh, Elizabeth, you don't look anything like a princess. You stink like smoke. You're dressed in a paper bag. Look at your hair. Come back when you're a real princess, and then we'll, we'll leave. And Elizabeth looks at him, and she said, Ronald, you look like a, prince. You look like a real prince, but you're a bum. And then she leaves. And that's the end of the story. Uh, um, uh, but what I was thinking about this, I was thinking, how often are we like Ronald? We want the outside to look so good, but the inside is just filled with our unconfessed sin, our unconfessed hate and greed and other things. God's not concerned about that outward appearance. He wants us to have that inward reality. Elizabeth was a real princess. Ronald was a fake. Too often we're living as fakes. I know I do. Have you been reconciled to the Lord? He's calling to you, return to me, and I will return to you. If you have been reconciled to the Lord, he wants to purify you, not just the outside, but the inside. He wants to take you and clean you up, and we need to be cleaned up. He doesn't just want us to no longer sin. He calls us to live in righteousness in every single area of our lives, in our personal relationships, our marriage, our dating, our parenting as children, as a friend, as a coworker, in our work ethic. Are we honoring our employers in every day that we show up to work, in every minute that we're there? In our financial stewardship, he wants us to be devoted completely to him, using our finances for his glory, joyfully giving above and beyond the tithe, even to people we see that are in desperate need. Are we honoring him as a consumer? This is something that I am very passionate about, having lived in China for six years, where a lot of the stuff that we here in America consume is made, and it's made often in horrible conditions where people are working sometimes 12 plus hours a day in very dangerous conditions to make our iPhones or our computers or our Nerf footballs or any number of different things. Do we let even that, our going to Walmart and buying a product, be consumed by the fact that God is our God and we want to live in a way that honors him? In our hobbies, recreation, entertainment, entertainment, are we letting the Lord purify that as well? I think he'd have something to say about what we as American society consume too often as entertainment, and even us as Christians. God's goal in purifying his people is for a purpose. He wants to purify them so that they can be that blessing that Abraham was always called to be. So they can be that blessing 
that Israel was called to be, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And we see that goal that's still far off for us even here in Malachi 4, 1 through 2. Malachi looked forward to the day when we will no longer need to be purified or sanctified, a day when God will return for final judgment and restoration. Malachi 4, 1 through 2, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. We look forward to that day when Jesus will finally return his second time, and this reality will be made true, where we no longer are in need of purification. We no longer have the impurities that need to be taken away from us because we will have been completely restored to a right relationship with the Lord. And we're reminded of that today in the Lord's Supper, which we will be celebrating. The Lord's Supper should remind us of God's salvation, of the fact that Jesus came to die in our place. I was nervous about knocking this over. That's why I'm being so slow. Where God will come and die in our, Jesus came and died in our place, taking our sins upon himself so that we might be given his holiness, his righteousness. It's not merely a reminder, though. We are strengthened and encouraged as we partake of this Lord's Supper. This Lord's Supper is a family meal. It is for those of you who have put their faith in the Lord Almighty, who have trusted in Jesus as your Savior. If that is true of you, we welcome you. Come, eat, drink, be reminded of what our Savior has done. In a moment, I will bless the elements and then invite the elders, but first let me pray for our Lord's Supper. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a God who is holy, pure, just, but gracious in that you want to reconcile with us, that you want us to return to, your, to you, that you want us to be saved and redeemed, and that you've made that possible in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you took our sins upon your shoulders. You died in our place, and we can be reconciled to you. And after we are reconciled to you, you begin the process of sanctifying us, purifying us, so that our sins are done away with and more and more of our lives are devoted over to you. We pray, Father God, that you would convict our hearts now of unconfessed sins so that when we take this Lord's Supper, we might be strengthened and encouraged to walk in holiness and pursue you and love our neighbor as ourselves. Father God, we thank you that you have saved us and that you have given us this to remind us and strengthen us in our walk. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to remember and follow you well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.